several years ago, I was leading a, a small prayer group of teenagers. And I said to them, okay, we're going to spend some time praying together here uh, this evening, but you can't start your prayer with the phrase, dear Jesus, thank you for this day. Okay? You can't use that phrase. You can't, you can't start your prayer with it. You can use it later in your prayer if you really want to thank Jesus for the day. But, but you can't start your prayer with it. So, you know, the first guy kind of, you know, f- got through it, forced his way through it. I think by the second guy, when it was his turn to pray, he already forgot. I, I literally, I stopped. I said, whoa, stop. No, you can't, you can't do that. Start over. Uh, I don't know if you're really supposed to do that in a prayer meeting setting, but I, I did. Um, and then the third guy just asked if we could pass. He's like, I don't, I don't know if I can do this. Uh, pass. Just go to the next guy. Um, and uh, I, I thought it was quite humorous um, and a little bit sad that uh, if you take away that phrase from the beginning of some of our prayers, we might not know exactly how to get started. W- what, if, what if I did that to you? What if, what if I came to you and said, um, I'm going to remove several prayer phrases from your prayer life and you still have to pray? So I removed a phrase like, God, please be with blank. Please be with so-and-so, right? Okay, you have to remember, first of all, God is omniscient. He's, he is already with so-and-so. We, we pray that all the time, right? God, please be with so-and-so. And I think God, I mean, he's, he's wise. He can figure out what you mean. Um, you're, you're asking that God, would, that, you would, that God would make this person aware of his presence with them and that God would bless them with a sensitivity to his uh, spirit, that sort of thing. But if we took away phrases like God be with or, or dear Jesus, thank you for this day, or, um, or make this food nourishing to our bodies, right? We wouldn't even have anything to pray at lunch if we didn't have that phrase. Um, and, and sometimes we're actually asking for a miracle um, when we ask God to make this food nourishing to our bodies, given what we're getting ready to eat, right? Like God use this dozen Krispy Kreme donuts to nourish my body, right? Like you're asking for the breaking of loaves and fishes um, kind of miracle there. Um, we pray, but often... Because we're kind of professionalized Christians, right? We've been Christians most of, if not all of our lives. Uh, we have prayer phrases that we use, and we, we pray things that are good if we think about them and mean them. The message I, I want us to look at this morning from the book of Ephesians is, I, I've called it, Better Prayer Requests. And we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to look at a prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesian believers. God has a message for the Ephesians, and fascinatingly, he wants Paul's prayer for them recorded for them. It's not very often that I write down a prayer that I pray for someone and then send it to them. I I might email or text or call someone and just say, hey man, I was praying for you this morning, and here's what I prayed for you. But I don't usually write down my prayer and send it to them. But God, under the inspiration of Scripture wanted Paul to write down a prayer and actually send it to the Ephesian believers because he wanted the Ephesian believers to believe something, to know something, and he also wanted prayer modeled for them. So we're going to look at the content of the prayer and also the example of the prayer together this morning. We're going to look at three things from this passage, three things that Paul prayed for the Ephesian believers. First, let's read the passage together. We're going to start in verse 15. We're going to focus um, uh, once we get to verse 17. But many of your Bibles actually even have a heading above verse 15 that says thanksgiving and prayer. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 
Okay, so, so Paul is thankful for the Ephesian believers. He, he prays for them. And then here's what he prays. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Have you ever prayed that for someone? Maybe you have. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul prays that the Ephesian believers will be illuminated, that they'll have eyes to see spiritual truths about God. He prays that they'll have hope, that they'll have hope in the gospel, and he prays that they'll understand the power of God toward them. So we're going to look at illumination, hope, and power, three prayer requests that Paul prays for the Ephesian believers. There are lots of prayers recorded through the Bible. There are lots of other things that uh, Paul and and many others in the scripture pray for other believers. But in this passage, we're going to look specifically at the prayer that Paul prays for these believers. So first of all, in verse 17, Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, that him is referring to Christ, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So this this spirit of wisdom, some have interpreted as the Holy Spirit and and others um, just as a, 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 uh, not the Holy Spirit necessarily, but just a a general spirit. It, It doesn't have a definite article that would make it the spirit, but you don't get a spirit of revelation and knowledge of God apart from the Holy Spirit. So at least the Holy Spirit's involvement is implied, and at best it's a direct reference to the Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can give us this spirit of wisdom, and that's why we ask for it, because it's not automatic. The Holy Spirit does open our eyes to this. You can't pray to enjoy the sunrise and then keep your eyes closed when the sun is coming up. You have to Open your eyes. You've got, to, you've got to get into the word of God and pray and ask the Holy Spirit of God to open your eyes to understand the significance of what you're reading. We want illumination. We want a sense of, of who God is and what God's like from the scripture. But often we don't open our eyes and we don't look in the proper place. And very seldom do we really pray for it. Now some of us may begin our Bible readings uh, with, with a prayer, God, God, work in me today through the word. Show me who you are more clearly through the word. And this is a great prayer to pray. I actually quoted scripture earlier this morning when I prayed this. Psalm 119, verse 18 says, Open my eyes, the psalmist David, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. So David had the law of God. He at least had the Pentateuch first five books of the Old Testament, and as David grabs his copy of the word of God, the law, he asks God, God, I'm not gonna see you unless you open my eyes, so open my eyes. I mean, my physical eyes are open, but open the eyes of my heart. We sing the song, right? Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. This is a 
this is a biblically informed prayer to pray when we approach the scriptures. My father-in-law who spoke here a few weeks, a few weeks ago, Dr. Berg, uh, uses uh, the following illustration, and I love it. He says, uh, seeking illumination in the scripture is uh, like stacking up uh, firewood, pieces of firewood into a pile to make your campfire, right? So you're, you're stacking up those logs. You've got the, everything is there for the fire except the spark to ignite it. And as we go through the scriptures, as we're reading our Bibles and we're studying who God is and what God's like and the character of God and how he worked in the life of believers in the Old Testament and, and how he worked in the life of believers in the New Testament and what we should expect in the future, we're, as we're going through the scripture, it's like we're, we're going through a forest and we're cutting down trees and we're, we're splitting logs and we're stacking up a great fire, but not until the Spirit of God comes and sets a spark to those logs will we have illuminated truth. Now it is our responsibility to go through the scripture and to, to, to do the foresting work, to, to, do the, to fell the trees and to, to, to accumulate the logs and then pray and ask God, God, you set fire to these truths. Many of us have experienced this, right? Many of you have experienced this, a verse that you've read hundreds of times before, thousands of times before, and suddenly God uses that verse in a, in a new and a unique way, maybe there's something specific that's happening in your life or, or you're just reading the passage and it grips your heart in a way that where you're struck with the significance of it. You've understood the meaning of it for years, right? And then suddenly the significance of that passage is, is, uh, is impacted onto your heart in a way that it hasn't before. This is the illumination of God. This is the spirit of uh, where are we? Verse 17. The spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. So we don't simply seek to understand the meaning. We must also understand the significance. This is illuminated truth. What is it specifically that Paul is praying that they'll see, though? He's praying specifically that they'll see Jesus, that they'll know God, and that they'll know God through Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says this, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So unbelievers, they, their eyes are spiritually blinded. See, this, this sight, the illustration of being able to see with spiritual eyes is all through the scripture. And Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that, that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the eyes of, of those who don't know Christ. And what has he blinded their eyes to? He's blinded their eyes to keep them from seeing the light of the good news of the glory of Christ. Next phrase, who is the image of God? Paul goes on to say, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you want to know God, if you want to see God, you see God through seeing Christ. Philippians 3.10, Paul says that his life's desire is to know Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. We must 
pray for illumination and spend time looking at Christ in the scriptures. Colossians 1.9 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So it's like, it's like God in concentrated form in the person of Jesus Christ. Now we don't have the privilege that the disciples had of walking with Jesus physically and literally on the earth, but we do have it recorded for us. In fact, it's even called the more sure word, the word of God. So as you're reading your scriptures, who are you looking for? See, as you read your Bible throughout the week, you're not looking for what's, which, which is how I've spent most of my life reading my Bible, looking for what's, right? Looking for principles that kind of guide my life. Read through Proverbs and you learn, okay, if I want to get along better with people, I, you know, I should turn the other cheek and should use my tongue uh, wisely and that sort of thing. And if I want to be financially blessed, I you know, need to handle my money this way. And you kind of use the Bible like a, you know, a spiritual self-help book. And I tend to read, we tend to read the Bible looking for what's in the Bible when the scripture is given to us to reveal us a person. It's given to reveal us a who, not a what, not a list of what's. And I've preached about that in, in previous sermons, how all of the scripture points us to Christ. So this is the first request that Paul has for the Corinthian, or excuse me, for the Ephesian believers here. That they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, a spirit of illumination and the knowledge of Christ. Verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Our religion is a religion of hope. Look there, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Everyone needs to know that Christianity is a religion of hope. People outside of Christianity, and I think sometimes especially people inside of the Christian faith. We can tend to live pretty hopelessly, can't we? One thing goes wrong, and we think, oh, it's just hopeless. Our religion is one of hope. Some of you are prone to hopelessness and despair. You may have to flip one page back. Let me, let me read to you Ephesians, starting in chapter, uh, in verse one, starting in, excuse me, in chapter one, starting in verse three. Um, Ephesians is one of my favorite books, and uh, one of our former pastors, Dr. Mark Minnick, uh, preached a two-part series on the book of Ephesians. To this day, it's one of my favorite sermon series ever, in part because it's short. It's just a two-part series. Um, but mostly because he expounds the glories of the book of Ephesians. Um, some have called the book of Romans, the, or he called the book of Romans the Himalayas of the New Testament, and Ephesians the Mount Everest of, uh, of the New Testament. So let me read to you um, what are some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture? Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us 
in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, how would you respond uh, if I informed you that you just won uh, the most spectacular sweepstakes in the history of the world? So I say, so first, the first installment of this sweepstakes is that you are awarded $20 million, tax-free, lump sum, you got it. It's in your bank account, okay? Uncle Sam didn't get any of it, it's yours, $10 million. Now, you get to go um, to Europe, and you get to pick out the 10 um, luxury sports cars of your choice. Just, you know, just go find the ones you like. They're yours. Um, you, uh, you are being awarded the islands of Hawaii. They're, like, they're yours for keeps. You can kick everybody off. You can keep everybody there. Like, um, if you were informed of, of this kind of news, of this kind of information, um, you'd well, you wouldn't believe it. Um, you would think that's just, that's, that's unbelievable. It's impossibly too good to be true. I'm not exaggerating at all when I say that this passage is better news than that. Now, we, because of our sinful, fallen, hopeless, depraved humanity, struggle to feel the way we should feel about the verses I just read. But these verses are infinitely more significant than if that sweepstakes were to be true for you. Let's, let's look back through it real quick. I'm just gonna highlight, I'm just gonna grab some phrases from this passage. Verse three, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse five, God predestined you for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse seven, you have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of your trespasses. Th- that phrase, forgiveness of your trespasses, is, is unbelievably huge. Your trespasses earned you eternal damnation, but you've been forgiven of them. Uh, verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. We have been predestined. Verse 13, we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, there are spiritual blessings in Christ that we, we don't begin to understand hardly the shadow of the reality of these truths. And these truths are written to us so that we might have, as Romans said, as Romans says, that we might have hope and that we might have hope abundantly. 
This is not a, merely like a, a cross your fingers kind of hope. This is a sure, confident expectation that will meet us at the end of this life, but also influences the way we live here and now. I read this quotation to you in a different sermon a while back. It, it's one that I go to regularly. Um, I, it, it will probably be in every third or fourth sermon I ever preach for the rest of my life because I, because I need to hear it, whether you do or not. Tim Keller uh, is quoting from a sermon that he listened to by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he, he kind of quotes Lloyd-Jones and, and then adds his own stuff, so I'm just going to read it to you this way. The gospel, he would say, is good news, but it's not good advice. Some of you may remember me having read this. Here, here's what he said about that. Advice is counsel about something that hasn't happened yet but you can do something about it. News is a report about something that has happened which you can't do anything about because it's been done. All you can do is respond to it. You understand the difference between news and advice? Okay, so he says, think, think this out. There's a king and he goes into battle against an invading army to defend his land. If the king defeats the invading army, he sends back good newsers. And what they come back with is a report. They come back and they say, uh, it, the, other the other team, uh, the enemy, that's it. Yeah, they're not teams. The, other, the enemy has been defeated and it's all been done. Therefore, respond with joy and now go about your lives in this peace which has been achieved for you. That's good news. But if he doesn't defeat the invading army and the invading army breaks through, the king sends back military advisors and says, marksmen over here and horsemen over there and we have to fight for our lives and boy jones says that every other religion sends military advisors to their people every every other religion is sending advice saying here are the rites here are the ritual rituals here's the transformation of the consciousness and, and here are the laws and regulations marksmen over here horsemen over there and we're going to fight for our lives. But we send heralds. We send messengers, not military advisors. That is incredibly clarifying for me. It's not like there's nothing to do about it. Both the messenger and the military advisors get an enormous response. One is a response of joy and the other is a response of fear. All other religions give advice and they drive everything you do with fear. As you know, when you hear the gospel, when you hear the message that it's all been done for you, Jesus paid it all, we sung that this morning, when you hear that it's all been done for you, and that it's a historical event that has happened, your salvation is accomplished for you. What do you want to do when you hear this news? You want to obey. You want to obey the Ten Commandments. You want to pray. You want to please the one who did this for you. If, on the other hand, military advisors say you have to live a really good life if you want to get into heaven, what do you do then? You actually do the same things. You, you pray, you obey the Ten Commandments. It looks the same, but for two radically different reasons. One is joy and the other is fear. In the short run, their religions may look somewhat similar, but in the long run, and the advice, religion, you have burnout, self-righteousness, and guilt, and all sorts of problems. The essence of the other religions is advice. Christianity is essentially 
good news. Other religions say this is what you have to do in order to connect with God forever. This is how you have to live in order to earn your way to God. But the gospel says this is what has been done in history. This is how Jesus lived and died to earn the way to God for you. Christianity is completely different. It is joyful news. How do you feel when you're given good advice on how to live? Someone says, here's the love you ought to have or the integrity you ought to have. And maybe they illustrate it with high moral standards by telling you a story of some great hero. But when you hear it, how does it make you feel? It may make you feel inspired, but you feel the way the listeners who heard those heralds felt when the victory was announced. Do you feel like your burdens have fallen off? Do you feel as if something great has been done for you and that you're not a slave anymore? Of course you don't. It weighs you down. This is how I have to live. It's not a gospel, it's advice. The gospel is that God connects to you not on the basis of what you've done or haven't done, but on the basis of what Jesus has done in history for you. And that makes it different from every other religion on the planet. It is a religion of hope. Having our eyes, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Uh, the, the verses 3 through 14 are, are articulating for us those reasons for hope. Reasons for hope, like you've been blessed in the heavenly places, you've been predestined for adoption as sons, you've been redeemed through his blood, you've been forgiven of your trespasses, you've obtained an inheritance, etc., etc. This gives us hope. It gives us hope for that final day when we will die and enter into eternity, and it gives us hope for today. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, the old hymn says. Some of you are in circumstances that are desperate and seem to have crushed the hope in your life, right? I don't know who you are. Everybody in here seems happy and like they've got their act put together and you know, you come in, you're all cleaned up and look good. But there are marriages in this room that are struggling big time. I, I, have no, I mean, I'm not thinking, if you think, oh, he's thinking of me. I'm not, I'm not thinking of you. I'm not thinking of anybody. I just know that this is the reality. There are families in here facing financial problems that seem surmountable, insurmountable. You're facing a physical condition that you've suffered with for years and you think there is no relief. You're struggling with a sin that you honestly think you'll never get victory over and it actually causes you to wonder whether or not you're truly a child of God. And here's what I want to say. The hope that is found for us in the gospel is the hope that gives us victory and encouragement even in these difficulties. Because, because when we consider that our greatest problem has been taken care of, and in Romans, God says that um, if uh, Paul is writing to the Roman church and he says, um, he who has not spared his own son, he will also with him freely give us all things. It doesn't mean that he'll take away every problem and that he'll, you know, he'll remove any kind of discomfort or pain or that he'll bless you financially with, with the rest of your life, but he will, give you, he will give you peace and security and hope in this life through the difficult times. And it's incredibly reassuring to me when I remember that my greatest problem has been taken care of. So when I face significantly smaller problems in this life, on this planet, in this world, I realize, you know what? Okay, so, so if, if a spouse dies, if a child goes wayward, if whatever, I mean, whatever is that kind of, that secret fear that you might have, right, where you think, I, I think I could handle just about anything except that. 
The hope that is found in the gospel gets you through even that. We can have hope because we know we are in Christ, and in Christ we win. Ultimately, we win. Heaven, eternity, it, it, it is a reward that we look forward to. We run a hard and difficult race at times now. The Bible describes our life on this planet as spiritual warfare. We think of it kind of as spiritual vacation, right? We think that Christianity is lived on the beach with a lemonade in our hands, and, and it's actually with, with a sword and a shield in our hands, and we're getting blood on our uniforms. But we're fighting because we know that the victory is absolutely certain. It's secure. It's already been finalized. It's been paid in full. This is a religion of hope. God's people have and will suffer greatly. Nowhere are we told that we won't suffer. In fact, in several places, we're told that we absolutely will suffer. But because of the hope we have in Christ, we can suffer well. Now the phrase, his glorious inheritance in the saints, that phrase has kind of given scholars a little bit of a challenge. Is God the author of the inheritance or the recipient of the inheritance? And as you look through Scripture, actually both are true. We, as the bride of Christ, are his inheritance, and he's also prepared an inheritance for us. So both of these things are true. Deuteronomy, even back in Deuteronomy chapter 32, the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. What is the hope to which God has called you? What is the inheritance that we receive? Eternity in the presence of God and his son Jesus with his Holy Spirit. These truths are written to give us hope. I quoted Romans 15.4 earlier. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Ephesians 2 Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having, do you know the next two words? Having no hope without God in the world. Do you realize that there was a time, I think some of us who have been Christians for a long time have forgotten that there was a time where we were without hope. We didn't, we didn't have hope and we didn't even have in our own strength and in our own merit, we didn't have hope of having hope. Like we were we were hopeless. So if, if I were, you know, uh, a prisoner of war uh, and I'm in, you know, some concentration camp and I'm shackled and I'm, uh, you know, I've been in there for months and I, you know, I weigh 75 pounds now and, and like I just, I've, I've given up hope and I'm rescued by the allied forces, right? They come in and they take out the bad guys and they rescue me and they, they unshackle me and they set me free um, and, uh, you know, they, they liberate me and I'm, I'm restored to health and that sort of thing. Um, I, I am forever changed by that encounter. There's not a day that goes by where I'm not aware that I was without hope, I was in darkness, and I've been set free by the power of someone else. This is, this, this is a message of good news and hope for us. My biggest problem has already been taken care of. And then lastly, Paul prays, that the Ephesian believers would understand God's power toward them in the gospel. Verses 19 and 20. He wants them to understand what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. We already have the power of God 
Why do we pray for what we already have? What we already have is, is strengthened through prayer. Paul isn't praying f- that they would have things that they, they don't, that they don't have at all yet, but he wants them to strengthen their understanding of these things, that their eyes would be opened and, and their understanding of these things would be expanded. He wants them to under, have an extent expanded understanding of the power of God toward them. I think, I think we handle the power of God the way the, the woodsman who had used an axe his whole life and went into the, the, um, the st- store, wherever they sell chainsaws, chainsaw store. I can't think of what you would call a chainsaw store. Uh, he went into the chainsaw store and he bought a chainsaw and you know the the salesman told him all about it and like man you're going to be able to cut down 10 times as many trees you know way faster this is just this is a really awesome tool you'll never use an axe again that sort of thing so um the uh the guy takes the woodsman takes the chainsaw and goes off into the woods for you know a week and comes back in and just chucks the thing on the table and he said i'm never using this again i'm going back to my axe and, and the, the salesman says to him, you know, what, what do you mean uh, you're going back to your axe after? I mean, I sold you the best, the best chainsaw money can buy. Um, I don't understand. And the guy's like, well, it doesn't work. It takes forever to cut a tree down with this chainsaw. Have some of you, you've heard this before. Some of you have heard this before. Okay, some of you are already laughing. Um, so uh, the, the guy says, well, here, let's just check it out real quick. And the salesman grabs it and he cranks it up. And the woodsman says, what's that noise? He never, he never tried starting the chainsaw. He didn't, he didn't crank it up. He was, he was just rubbing the, the blade on the tree, trying to cut trees down, okay? That didn't work. Okay, <laughs> the, the point is, uh, there was a power in that chainsaw that the woodsman was completely unaware of, com- just didn't utilize, didn't, didn't know it resided there. I don't think most of you know that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. I, I don't believe that. Most of the time, I don't believe that. And I didn't make that up. That would be crazy if it wasn't in the scripture. If I said the exact same power that God raised Jesus from the dead with is the same power that's at work in you, I'd be like, that's crazy. Except that it's scripture. Verse Verse 19, what is the immeasurable? Okay, so immeasurable means you can't measure it. It's, it's, it's so big, you can't measure it. The immeasurable greatness of his power. I mean, already, like I'm thinking, I don't ever feel like that. I don't ever feel like that spiritually. I feel weak. I feel immeasurably weak. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? So see, the, the strength does not reside in you. It, it's his great might. Verse 20, his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This power is at work within us. Spence in the pulpit commentary writes, the whole energy of the divine being is turned on to our feeble, languid nature, enlivening, purifying, and transforming us, making us wonderfully active where all was feebleness before. 
When we think of the glory of the inheritance, we feel unfit for it. Our fear is removed when we think of the greatness of the divine power that works in us. What kind of power is it? I already said it's the kind of power, the same kind of power that raised Jesus from the dead. If there was any question as to how powerful this power is, we're given an illustration of what it can do. It raised Jesus from the dead. If, if, you, were, if you were to, by yourself, kind of walk through the, the dangerous and... But we'll pick, a, we'll pick L.A. You know, at night, someone drops you off in the, the really dangerous... I don't, I don't know dangerous parts of L.A. There's probably a dangerous part of L.A. Um, so someone drops you off there by yourself at night and uh, they say, okay, uh, take care, I'll get you in the morning. Y- you're gonna live fearfully, you're gonna live timidly, you, you're going to, you're gonna hide, you're gonna try to, you know, s- any way that you can avoid anyone seeing you, you're, you're going to do that. You're gonna live very timidly, very fearfully. But if, if someone drops off, when they drop you off, they drop off my favorite superhero with you. You might be thinking Incredible Hulk, no. You might be thinking Captain America, no. Jason Bourne. Jason Bourne is with you. Yes, he's a superhero. They drop Jason Bourne off with you. You know, you're not worried anymore. You're like, come on, bad guys. I want bad guys to come because I got Jason Bourne. When Jason Bourne gets chased by bad guys, he chases them back. Like, I mean, he's just, he's not afraid of anybody. I want to be dropped off in the bad part of town with my favorite superhero, Jason Bourne. If I can't get him, Incredible Hulk will do in a pinch. Now, we, we live in this world often very fearfully, very timidly. And brothers and sisters, we have immeasurably great power at our disposal. And Paul is saying, I'm going to pray that you come to a greater understanding and a greater usefulness of this power in your life. Often we take the name Christian and then we live very indistinct from the rest of the world. The kind of powerful Christianity that we see on display in the scripture is just foreign to us. This is resurrecting power. It is sovereign power. And it's power that God wants us to pray for and power that God wants us to experience. Now remember, this is a prayer. Paul wants people to experience these things and I believe God wants us to pray this way. So when we pray, go Go to the scriptures and find places like this and pray these kinds of passages for yourself and for your family and for your friends. Go through the Psalms. So many of them are prayers that are written down for us and and pray those things for yourself. You may want to adjust your prayer list a little bit. So instead of praying through the list of names, God be with so-and-so, God be with so-and-so, God be with so-and-so, that's well-intended. Take your list of names and this passage. And as you work through your list of names, God, I pray, I pray that you would give my wife a spirit, uh, that, that you would give her a spirit of wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of your son, Christ. I pray that she would come to a fuller understanding of who he is and what he's like. Father, I pray for the pastors at our church that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they would know what is the hope to which they've been called. Take passages like this and let them inform the way you pray and read passages like this and know that God wants these to be realities and truths for you so you will likely need to include scripture in your prayers this is one just obvious application from this passage include 
Scripture when you pray. Read your Bible. Look for Jesus. Look for prayers and pray those prayers for other brothers and sisters. Pray for each other. Pray for our church. Pray for the next generation. But use the prayers of Paul and others in the Scripture to pray this way. There are, there are better prayer requests than most of the prayers that we pray, than many of the prayers we pray. There are better prayer requests. Not that we don't pray for the healing of a broken leg and the, that so-and-so would get a job and that their cat would be healed. Um, th- those are legitimate prayer requests, but there are some better prayer requests that we often neglect. If you're an unbeliever in here, notice in verse 15, Paul is actually talking to a specific group of people here. Paul's talking to believers for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Paul is writing this passage to people who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And if you're in here this morning and you you don't know Christ as your Savior, you haven't turned from your sin and put trust in Jesus as your Savior, you will not know this hope, this power, this illumination. You won't know. These things are, these are not benefits that come to those who are outside the family of God. So let me encourage you to consider your sin and your great Savior and to come to him as Savior, to bow your knee now while there's still time. For those of us who are believers and know Christ as our Savior, understand that it is Paul's heart of love and thanksgiving that motivates this kind of praying for his fellow believers. Let's pray for one another in this way. Let's pray for ourselves to understand these truths better. And by God's grace, let's obey the scriptures and pray better prayer requests.